0: Hi, and welcome to episode 170 of the IOPN podcast, the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast, and I'm Lauren Bannock. Now, today I had a great conversation, really enjoyable discussion with Professor James Betts, who you're going to hear from in a minute, where we discussed a topic we have gotten into periodically from different perspectives, which is nutrient timing. And in this case, we get into the topic of nutrient timing and metabolic regulation and ah oh, it's such an important topic as we discuss and make clear the idea of of how much to eat how often to eat and perhaps the timing of when you eat those things particularly relative to things like training which of course we've discussed many times and the impact that that has on training adaptation, substrate utilization, that sort of thing. Really, really well researched. Perhaps less so is the metabolic machinery and the impact that some of these timing, these habits, these behaviors that we have that link to environmental regulators, if you like, things like light, dark, also, the, the sheer habit of doing something at the same time every day, for example, is all really rather interesting. And of course, that sort of leads into this concept of circadian rhythms, the concept of chrononutrition we discussed briefly, although I have another podcast that will specifically focus on that coming hopefully soon. But the mind-blowing idea that that there are molecular clocks in peripheral tissues like the liver and skeletal muscle and adipose tissue and, and so on and how that gives rise to these rhythms in in macronutrient metabolism and very important factors like the regulation of, of appetite of course which is of great interest particularly where some people overeat or make choices that are appetite driven takes us down this path of interest i think is going to blow your minds uh, so anyway i will let you listen to all of that in a minute, just before you do, though, you can catch up with the notes from this podcast. Uh, Link to all the relevant podcasts I've done with James Betts, Professor James Betts, as well as all the other episodes that I do, of course, is at www.theiopn.com. And while you're there, check out our advanced diploma, our online diploma in performance nutrition. It's a completely unique program. It's uh, practitioner-led and practitioner-focused, five postgraduate-level modules, which will thoroughly train and develop you as a practitioner that 's the idea of the program is to give you the knowledge and tools you will require in practice something that um, a lot of the many degree programs out there the very good programs still Aren't able to cover some of this stuff in quite as much detail as we do, which is the luxury of how we've approached and designed our program. So, whether this is a new specialism you wish to add to your existing nutritional dietetics practice uh, for primarily health or clinical nutrition focused, then sport and exercise nutrition specialism is an exciting area to add to your practice. If you're a sports scientist, uh, strength conditioning coach, personal trainer, this is a whole a whole area that is incredibly relevant to your practice, your your work that you do. And of course, if you're a sports nutritionist already, and you just want to deepen further your knowledge in certain areas that we feel could really take your practice to another level, you should also consider our program. So anyway, learn about it at www.theiopn.com. And also can check out our software for practitioners. Our practitioner software is Senpro. It is there specifically to help you with your practice working with individual clients or in group coaching environments or team settings, general population, all the way through to elite athletes, which is how I use it. You've heard a few previous guests talk about how they use it in their practice. It's used in a lot of Premier League football and rugby teams now. For example, check it out at www.theiopm.com. Now, I hope you enjoy this conversation I had with Professor James Betts about nutrient timing and metabolic regulation. Take care. Okay, so welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition We Do Science Podcast, the IOPN podcast. I've been doing this podcast for quite a while now. It's been quite a few years and I've had the odd year where I've not done much, mainly because I've been working in team sports, tournament sports, that sort of thing. So I've dipped in and out of my efforts here, but right now I'm really getting back into my podcasting, which I love. And the main reason why I love it actually is entirely selfish. It's because I get to talk to people who really have an incredible depth of knowledge in certain areas that I wouldn't necessarily be able to access if I wasn't having this kind of podcast conversation and or I just wouldn't have the time to go visit them or or whatever. So this is a unique situation. And today we're going to get into a topic with uh, a guest that we've had on many times before. Uh, I say had on many times, Professor James Betts. James, how are you, mate?
1: Very well, thank you. Lovely to
0: see you again. And you, mate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everyone's listening to the audio, but for some reason, I just don't do the video of this. It's probably best, actually. (laughs) It's probably best. But I said, welcome back. You have done a couple of podcasts with us over the years, and you've lectured for us quite a few times on our various IOPN events. And before I I guess I go into the specific topic that I was going to get into today, I think actually... The better way around of doing this is if you introduce yourself, James. Not everyone will have, have listened to all of my podcasts. They may or may not know about you, but it'd be great to tell us where you're at right now and what you're up to.
1: Thanks. Well, yeah, I'm down at the University of Bath. I've been working here. I think this is my 17th year down here at the University of Bath. I'm the co director of our Center for Nutrition, Exercise and Metabolism, which is really the headline name for pulling together the various researchers we have down here working in this area so we've I think I hope anyway built up a kind of hub of people working towards a a common goal here the kind of work that I do and and that the center does is really looking at randomized control trials in human beings is the the broad area my personal interests surround nutrient timing as that pertains to health and also then with Physical performance being a part of that. And with that performance link, too, I'm also editor in chief of the International Journal of Sports Nutrition and Exercise Metabolism. So, managed to keep my toe more than just a little bit in the water with the current thinking in sports nutrition.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's very generous of you to spend this time today talking to me because you're obviously a busy guy. And you mentioned just there one of your interests, which was in nutrient timing as it relates to health, as it relates to physical performance. And this is a topic that we've covered a lot on this podcast and also on our program. We've had loads of lectures and sort of an important aspect of that is to go beyond the word nutrient timing to provide it with a little bit of context, of course, because nutrient timing has been approached by various authors in various journals from a different perspective with a different context of focus. And as a result, there are differing views as to the relevance and value of, of nutrient timing. On the one hand, we might look at it from the perspective of training adaptations and body composition, for example, in those looking to have a higher quality of body composition as it relates to either aesthetic purposes or strength and power, obviously muscle being focus there and some others would be simply just a number on scales weight and then of course there is the whole sort of metabolic health thing and yes they can all combine but oftentimes they're approached very differently with different views as to how important nutrient timing may or not be for example a common view of the relevance of nutrient timing simply for body composition, if we keep it as simple as that is, why well, it's just not as important as overall energy balance, for example. But it isn't that simple in reality, which is why I've done a number of podcasts already on that from those different perspectives and why I wanted to come back to this topic today, because I'd read a symposium review that you and your PhD student, Harry Smith, came out on nutrient timing and metabolic regulation. And I found it fascinating for a number of reasons, which we'll delve in today, just this whole complexity of the metabolic machinery. And it really is mind-boggling stuff for those that really want to geek out on this stuff and go beyond the very basic but very important components that we do need to pay attention to in, in sort of general nutrition concepts. This idea of circadian rhythms and the various aspects that goes on inside of that metabolic machinery is, is so so much more complex than that simplistic view that that I just described. But before we delve into this this topic, which I guess will have various rabbit holes that we can go to on just on the the general idea of nutrient timing for health and performance and so on. What has led you down this path? And isn't the first? I mean, we've had similar conversations. You and your colleagues, such as Heavy Gonzalez. Dylan Thompson I'm going back years now there's certainly a stronghold of research and focus at Bath with you and your team there but but why you know what has kept you down this path and what keeps you motivated and excited about this topic
1: yeah so I, I think one thing in my general approach is I like to think about what fundamental questions we've missed along the way I always love that if I'm reading about something and realize we've built up to this complex often overwhelming body of literature But when you start going back and questioning assumptions, you think, oh, hey, we kind of missed some fundamental steps there. Let's go back and fill in the gaps before we answer the next question. So I suppose I can see there's a few areas of my research at the moment, even aside from nutrient timing, where I I hope anyway I'm, I'm going back and looking at those fundamentals. And certainly timing was one of those key areas that there is just a vast literature on how much of what we should eat? Should we have high carb or low carb, high sugar, low sugar? And Those are all questions about how much you eat and the type of thing that you're eating. And, you know, I feel like a broken record here because I'm always saying this, but I think the third component of amount and type is timing, when you're eating it. And in some ways, that's a more fundamental question because that isn't just about how much you're eating, it's about whether you do it at all. The absence of nutrition Versus the presence. So, it, like I say, in many ways, the most fundamental question you can ask about nutrition is whether you're getting any. Yeah, this whole area of fasting and meal timing, nutrient timing, seems to me to be one of the really fundamental areas where there's a real lack of information in relative terms. And so, yeah, it's going to keep us busy, at least for the rest of my career, because there's so many questions to answer and so many of the studies we do, as most science does raises more questions than it answers but i think that's a good thing
0: yeah absolutely well look i mean it's not like this isn't a an interesting if not hotly debated topic you know like i said it does depend as always it depends and sadly a lot of people don't do things that i try more or more lately at least i've tried to get into in these conversations. is define what people mean by nutrient timing and define in what context they're even talking about and that phrase it depends or context you know what are those contexts and and in what scenarios is this stuff likely to be more or less relevant particularly when you start to think nowadays modern human beings but particularly modern athletes of course travel a lot so in that situation you've got demands on time There's significant issues with practicality of preparing food, cooking food, accessing food, even being able to afford food, not to mention other issues that could be sort of philosophical, religious, or just plain fussiness or or whatever. And we then combine that with the requirements to perhaps eat something, you know, proximal to a training session or a competition, and/or actually. Depending on the context, i.e., you're an elite athlete or you're definitely nowhere near an elite athlete, it may not be remotely relevant in your particular situation. And much of this stuff tends not to get discussed. It's very black and white, sort of polarized debates. You know, well, it's not important to eat breakfast, which is something that Javi came on at one point to talk about, which you guys have done a lot of research on, which is why I wanted to talk more about this rather than look at it from the what has become a more, I guess, well known perspective of total type and then timing. What do you mean by nutrient timing, James? What does that specifically mean? And then I think we can unpack it.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because, again, being a broken record, I start just about every talk I do by let's define terms. There's so many areas of nutrition science in particular where there's a huge argument and debate and actually you realize both people are saying the same thing but they've just defined the terms differently. So yeah, for me, we called it nutrient timing in this review and one of the journal reviewers helpfully pointed out we hadn't used the word chrononutrition until the end. And that's a term that I think we happily added because that does really, what most people mean by nutrient timing brings in chrononutrition, the when of eating. And the difficulty here is that we kind of split it in this review into sections of talking about absolute timing, which is about the kind of time of day and some of the more classical circadian research about when you eat relative to the time that we can all understand looking at our watches, but also the relative timing aspect, meaning when you are choosing to eat or not eat relative to and then the list is is almost endless, but common things would be relative to the light levels, depending on where you are on the planet and the time of day, whether you slept recently, relative to your recent meals, relative to when you would normally do those things is a really important one. And then lastly, but not least, is relative to exercise, which is where we suddenly find that this area has particular importance for individuals who are physically active because that's a critical decision then is to do you eat before during or after your training sessions and that works both ways because if we know that there are certain health and performance effects of eating at a certain time of day could the exercise facilitate those effects but then could eating in a certain time to exercise facilitate those i mean for example we we know that after a intense prolonged exercise you want to eat more quickly after exercise rather than leave it a few hours because you will more rapidly store glycogen but as i say there's the other consideration of well what if that means now moving your evening meal forward a bit is that a good thing to do
0: yeah absolutely and i mean well i can't wait there's so many angles here that i want to to get into but uh, i'm going to hold back on on that because you used A term circadian timing which is sort of at the heart of this stuff that I think for many I mean they'll probably have heard of the word circadian rhythm or possibly circadian timing and I would propose much fewer people would have heard about chrononutrition and and so on although we're certainly going to talk about that briefly and I've got a whole podcast as well we're going to do on that topic but what is so relevant anyway about the mammalian circadian timing system anyway particularly from a nutrition sort of metabolism perspective why is that even an issue i
1: think you can gauge its importance in one way at least by the fact that every organism has this and then as as you said particularly mammals have these rhythms and when you're looking in just about any organ or tissue or cell type in the body we find the expression of this machinery that is responsible for Tick tocking and and knowing what time of day it is. And it doesn't really, you know, it's just intuitive, really, to think what an advantage that would be in evolutionary terms for your body not just to have to react to, oh, it's dark, it's time to go to sleep, or it's morning, I better be ready to go and procure some food, to have some kind of anticipation that whereby your physiology can determine, oh, okay, so every day at eight, we have to go out and procure the food for the day. So your entire physiological system can anticipate that and be ready for the event at the time. So intuitively it makes sense that we should have these rhythms and the fact that they're just so abundant in the body and in nature really I think attests how important and helpful they can be. And then it's just the natural step on from that to say, well, is there anything we can do either to help entrain a rhythm that's going to be useful to us, or at least to recognize what the rhythm is due to other things like your sleep pattern and your exercise pattern so that you eat at the appropriate times for that
0: this is going to be very interesting to a lot of people for various reasons and i guess there's lots of words we're now using over the years i can think of many conversations where we've talked about regulatory systems and i guess one thing that springs to my mind then is is where does this fit in all of those regulatory systems are we is there sort of a master and a slave scenario here? What role does it play? Or maybe it's not even possible to answer that question because we don't even know enough yet, but clearly you're aware of a role it plays somewhere in that orchestra of events in the body. How significant actually is this?
1: Yeah, so the the master and the slave angle is an interesting one because you get kind of, it's it's a circuit, a feedback circuit. So essentially, as I said, your daily behaviours can drive and entrain your rhythms to work efficiently for the next day, but are also then subject to those rhythms and and the responses we get. So I think if people are trying to visualise these, a kind of simple way to frame it would be that the classical circadian studies that would feed people constantly or essentially taking away the things that would usually elicit responses. So if you take away people's usual exposure to light, their usual sleep pattern, their usual meal pattern, some of the metabolic responses that we see over a 24-hour period would persist, even in the absence of the stimulus. So there we're really seeing the circadian effect that the body has this inbuilt clock that's going to go on tick-tocking every few hours, even if there's no other stimulus. But then on top of that, you can layer on these diurnal and nocturnal influences where if you go to sleep other things will happen when you sleep so for example if you even if in the middle of the day you shut your eyes and go to sleep things like growth hormone might start to elevate so yeah i guess the the circadian system is master and slave it can be set by our behaviors but also determine our behaviors and responses to them
0: i mean i i mean i haven't pre-thought this but what's coming up in my head is very much this idea of It's like a manual watch. I mean, we're not recording the video, but I'm thinking uh, like in the sort of watch I got here, you've got like a mechanism you can see on the side. You start tightening it up, but also there's this concept of a power reserve in your watch. and, And if you don't stay on top of it, that reserve starts to drain away to a point that it won't become functional. But also over a long period of time, that mechanism becomes less efficient over time as a result because of that lack of stimulus, which is just moving your hand around or or whichever, which could, I guess, link to physical exercise and activity with some degree of regularity. Because if you don't do it often enough, your watch is sort of draining its resources quicker than it accumulates them. I'm sure that analogy is probably not holistically, remotely going to cover this aspect. But in my head, there's a sort of it sort of makes sense because you talk about clocks and various things in in the paper, and this is a very difficult concept to grasp. I mean, you know, you're you're in the gym, you're in in doing whatever, and you think about lifting something, and there's muscles, or you might delve into energy metabolism and so on. But the very idea that that there's these rhythms of uh, and there's these sort of controlling, regulating systems, and there's clocks in different parts of the body, and so on. Maybe you can help us piece that picture together because it's pretty mind blowing.
1: Yeah, there's so many papers that paint that picture. They talk about clocks in different parts of the body, and and certainly the imagery you see on journal covers, they love to draw these tiny little pocket watches within each cell. So it is kind of interesting, and it's not far off to talk about it like that, because a clock is just a a set of machinery that keeps to time. Interestingly, there was a, a little riddle that one of my boys saw somewhere, which was what type of what type of clock has the most moving parts? And the answer was a sand timer. But I spoke to John Johnson at Surrey, and he said, no, it's the mammalian timing system. Because when you think of the number of molecules involved, and then of course, the other part of the question was which type of clock has the fewest number of moving parts. But maybe we'll leave that one in the yeah. chat and see if <laughs> anyone listening can come up with the clock with the fewest number of parts. But yeah, it there are literally these clocks centrally and in various tissues that gives you this buffer where you can get the two-way relationship, where the peripheral tissues, I mean, obviously the, the eye can give photic input, but all sorts of peripheral signals are going to be signaling to the center what the environment's doing. And then that can be layered on and perhaps change things to anticipate differently, which is why somebody who works night shifts, for example, wouldn't display the same rhythm as somebody who didn't usually do that a more kind of interesting philosophical question i've been thinking about recently though is how if we're still keeping our exercise physiology hat on is it in many ways makes sense to talk about circadian rhythms and say well if your body expects this at the same time every day then do it at the same time and you will be entrained you know eat during daylight at the same times every day and that will do for your body what it expects. But then if we go to the other, put our other hat on of being the exercise physiologist, then that's not at all what we do with training, is it? We love to tell athletes, shock your body, stress your body, progressive overload, train harder, train differently. So I do wonder whether for athletes there might even be a case of saying, well, do you want to get your body used to doing the same thing all the time? Or maybe straining the system to adjust your rhythms might mean that let's imagine if you're like clockwork and do the same thing every time every day for 4 years building up to the Olympics and then you go across a few time zones to the Olympics this is the first time you've ever had to do things out of rhythm so I wonder if there is this is pure speculation on my part but there could be a case to say in training your circadian rhythms differently at different times might be a smart thing to do
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. I can't wait to discover what you guys and your research colleagues around the world discover as the years goes by. But you've just reminded me of, well, I mean, I've listened to many fascinating lectures and had many interesting conversations over the years. But one of the ones that really blew my mind was with Dylan Thompson. All those years ago when he came to talk to us about a number of different topics where I personally was introduced to compensatory mechanisms as a consequence of certain things and the impact that that has on various feedback mechanisms and so on, which, you know, of course, makes it quite clear that that if we look at everything from a very static black and white sort of perspective, it doesn't allow for those things that can happen outside of that very narrow focus that that we have either in research or in a conversation or a perspective, or of course, in an intended strategy to deal with something when we haven't thought about the bigger picture. Is there an aspect of that in this too, where these feedback mechanisms are engaged possibly when we're not on time, so to speak, with these situations?
1: Yeah, I really think so. And as you mentioned, Dylan has many wonderful papers on this, but the terms that I've heard him use frequently are kind of substitution and erosion and how if you choose to exercise at certain times of day, might have more or less benefit, not necessarily because of the time of day, but because of what they're replacing. So for example, if I go to the gym at the time I'd usually be walking home, yes, it's beneficial to go to the gym, but it replaced walking home. If I go to the gym at the time when I'd usually be sat at my desk, then it's a win-win because it replaces sedentary behavior. So we definitely do see that. And I think for my part, that's why we started doing the breakfast research here, Because I figured if there's any carryover effect of eating or not eating on behaviours like snacking and physical activity, we'll do it at the start of the day. And then you've got the whole day of activity to accumulate it. Whereas equally, there's other interventions we've looked at where we've said, well, why not do those in the evening? Because night time might be a natural time when you're really not going to compensate for any of the more behavioral responses. So some of our current research and things we're looking to do in the future are about having either a supplement or a meal right before bed or even waking up at night to consume things for the exact opposite reason that if there is any potentially negative effect on behavior you know, it doesn't matter because you're asleep. So you're not going to eat differently or be more or less active because we're taking advantage of the sleep period.
0: Yeah, I know. It's fascinating. And uh, again, it's not for any particular reason I'm saying this. It just keeps sparking off memories lately of conversations I've had, for example, where I had John Hawley on, this is again a few years ago, and he was talking very much about the importance of an integrative view of biology or physiology or biochemistry or whatever, from his perspective, it's sort of a disappointment or a dismay on how so much research does not always take that into account, particularly as it relates to taking those findings and then applying them into practice, which is obviously sort of almost going the opposite way. Clearly, there's an element here where these rhythms will interact with signaling pathways and processes and obviously nutrient regulation, something we're particularly interested in, of course, in performance nutrition, which I guess brings us to this topic of how does this stuff affect the fundamental processes of nutrient metabolism and what is the the relevant there?
1: Uh, Yeah, okay. So, well, to pick up on uh, what you mentioned about John Hawley's work, Hmm. the the paper that uh, he and Louise Burke published in Science Journal really, I think, captured that whole sentiment, as you say, of being integrative and not being binary. There was so much debate going on about should you exercise in a fasted state or a fed state? Well, of course, they're just making the point where you don't have to answer that question the same way every single day. Maybe it's there's some days athletes want to be fed and some days they don't. And on the integrative point, yeah, we we can show biochemically in terms of the molecular machinery that exercise in the fasted state might elicit a greater stimulus to adapt but then it's only when you also step back and look at the whole body physiology you realize oh hang on the athletes now not training as hard because those high quality sessions they haven't got the drive to exercise so yeah the integrative approach both in terms of mechanisms to whole body but also in theory and practice seem really necessary and I think as it relates to metabolism, then we can layer these things on the same way. So we we know that when individuals wake up, whether they be athletes or, or not, we, we get this thing called the dawn phenomenon where you would have essentially the simplest way to remember it is that just that your glucose tends to be a bit higher in the morning and then your fatty acids in the system are going to accumulate over the day, whereas in the morning you actually might be... Better primed to take up glucose. So, we tend to eat a carbohydrate rich breakfast, and you might be better able to tolerate that or to control your blood sugars in the morning. So, we know that the response to the same meal can differ across a day. And I think an athlete could make use of that to know, even on a rest day, that what they eat is going to do different things to them depending on the timing, but especially on exercise days, whether that comes before or after exercise, which links to all of Javier Gonzalez's work on breakfast timing, before or after exercise, even if you're actually going to have breakfast, sometimes it might be best to wait till after your workout.
0: Yeah, I I mean, that brings me to that whole area of nutrient priming, which is fascinating. We were introduced to that at the IOP on one of our lecture weekends years ago by Lee Hamilton gave us this mind-blowing overview of nutrient priming and that was back then you know it's obviously come a long way particularly when you think about nutrient priming in the context of nutrient timing (laughs) then we start we start really bouncing this one off and then i'm going yeah but hang on we've got to remember is this the same for everyone or are we talking about is there a again you've you and have you did a paper about you know it, it, you know what's the relevance of genetics as it relates to some people wanting to do genetic testing is that you know is there even a point to that maybe we've got more in common than we don't how much of this is trainable i mean boy this gets quite interesting because obviously there's there's a limit to what you can put into a paper and you have to you know you've got average man of an average height and weight sort of thing that is there a certain Way that you're approaching this topic, where you have to, for the sake of keeping it simple, what are your thoughts on that, on the sheer, I guess, variability that exists on this topic?
1: Right, and I think it's almost impossible to get a handle on that, certainly at the moment. And the reason for that is if we ever want to try and understand individual differences, it takes a really uh, quite a challenging experiment to truly understand if there are individual differences something called a replicated crossover design, where you essentially do an RCT, which is challenging enough, and then just do it again with the same people to see if the people you're calling responders are really responders. So what we end up with most of the time is just lumping people in categories. So there'll be studies looking at an old group versus a young group, an obese group versus a lean group, men versus women. And if we've got these it's often binary, but certainly clear categories, you combine them. And if you find that, say, people with more body fat, so an obese group, if they happen to have high leptin and lower adiponectin, then you might be able to say, well, that seems to be a trait that's consistent. And therefore, we would conclude that obesity is correlated with that. Now, why can't we do that for meal timing? And it's because it doesn't fit into neat categories. When we did our breakfast research, so many people were saying, are these people breakfast consumers or not? And I think, well, do we all get tattooed at birth to say if we're a breakfast consumer that it's not the same as male versus female or obese versus lean? We don't have two binary categories of breakfast consumer and not. Sometimes you are, sometimes you aren't, and and I'm not even too convinced that the people who are Hard and fast breakfast consumers and skippers are are really that different in their response to some of these things. So it is difficult to do an individualized approach to nutrient timing, for sure. I mean, I don't know how we're gonna get closer to that other than comparing groups, because it's such a complex area to to work out who's doing what really.
0: The mind boggles, James, but you'll find a way, I'm sure, particularly with the advances in technologies. You know, if we were having this conversation even five years ago you may not imagine some of the things that you could do now, perhaps. I guess there's always that to look forward to. But you made me think of, well, you use the words responder and not responder, of course, and that's a can of worms, isn't it? Because (laughs) some people may be, I guess, outliers, and of course they wouldn't be a responder to that given protocol because it just isn't something that would fit for them. I mean, it gets pretty tricky, doesn't it?
1: (laughs) I would say in my role as an editor... Nine times out of ten that you see people talk about responders and non-responders, there is not good evidence of responders and non-responders there. It's speculation about whether they exist. I mean, on a more positive note, while I am have more of a downer on the whole mm. personalised nutrition because I think we're further away from those things, mm. the other thing you mentioned about nutrient priming, though, that I'm really excited that there's lots that we're learning Because, you know, for years there was lots of fasted blood samples, and then loads of the early sports nutrition research was done on fasted athletes. And I don't know, over the last 10 or 15 years, people started to say, well, this isn't how athletes participate. So many of these studies were then done in a fed state. And I think increasingly now we're seeing that in the nutrition world as well recognition that the vast majority of what you eat, you do not consume on an empty stomach as your first meal of the day. So we're seeing more and more research look at the primed state where you've already had your initial meal, looking at sequential meal tests and the postprandial response because we pretty much spend the entirety of our waking day in a fed or postprandial state. If we're thinking about the blood lipids, you could almost argue that many people spend 24 hours a day in a fed state and are almost never post absorptive or fasted so yeah that's a big growth area we're seeing more research there and learning a lot on that
0: yeah no i'm definitely excited about that that's plenty of topics to get into over the years that's for sure because we're in sport and exercise nutrition or sports science strength conditioning however which way you look at it we're very familiar with adaptations to training we're familiar to things that may suppress performance in certain ways things that will reduce or elongate time to fatigue these sorts of things these mechanisms that we're we're delving deeper into these mechanisms that respond to stimuli, which absolutely could be training, physical training is one thing, but and we're now starting to go down this idea of nutritional training, whether it's train low, train high, eliciting adaptations to that, you know, train low, you know, increasing the impact that that will have on on mitochondria, for example, blah blah blah, blah and substrate utilization and and so on. And then more recently, we've even started talking about training the gut, for example. If we go really deep into that metabolic machinery, I, I imagine a lot of things are technically trainable because it's just a, an adaptation to a, a series of, of responses, which are, are going to be chronic as opposed to acute. With the focus on this circadian rhythm sort of idea, this trainability of the circadian rhythm, is it set in stone from your perspective, or is there a degree of trainability there what are your thoughts
1: these rhythms are are certainly trainable and, and we know that based on evidence because there are plenty of studies which demonstrate that whether you call it dysregulation or regulation but individuals who are following daily patterns which are more or less in line with recommendations will exhibit a phenotype which is better or worse matched to what they need so We know that this is trainable based on evidence, but that also, again, it makes perfect sense and is easily understandable because unlike other adaptations, if we think of the classical exercise adaptations, say, where you're trying to undergo mitochondrial biogenesis, increase the ability to utilize sugars at the muscle, or, or even to gain more muscle with resistance training, those things arguably have more obstacles in the way because we need to have the stimulus which often would involve the nucleus seeing some gene expression so we've flicked the switch the recognition that the body could be more suited to this activity but that needs to now pass through to the whole body level so we then also need to see some protein expression and then we need to accumulate and incorporate that protein and then find that at a tissue level and at a whole body level we've adapted. So know for argument's sake we actually would need to see a bigger bicep at the end of the day you've had to make something with all of the restrictions in place with that you know were you stimulating the adaptation maximally at the right time and then providing the substrate to let it happen now arguably with the circadian timing system we're not necessarily looking for a bigger net result at the end we just need things to happen at a different time so maybe on that more philosophical angle it becomes more understandable why this might be trainable because it's entrainable we can just shift our rhythm a few hours and there's no greater overall grams per day cost for whatever nutrient we needed it just needs to happen at a different time and we know that the system has the uh, capacity to to change the clocks like that
0: we're in danger of this conversation i can see could go on for hours so It's just mind-bogglingly interesting to me. Uh, I hope it is to everyone else. But I guess where I want to go on this at this point is these rhythms and how they influence macronutrient metabolism. I know we touched on on some of this, but we've got lipid metabolism. We've got carbohydrate metabolism. Each of those conversations in themselves could be hours and hours and hours. But what I guess we've already established, it isn't necessarily a one-way process nonetheless there is a significant influence or significant interaction that occurs that's going to be relevant to health and or performance could you take us through that a bit please
1: without putting kind of different organs and tissues Mm. in in rank order we we always have on the tip of our tongue don't we here's the key metabolic tissues when we're thinking about something like exercise muscle obviously being our engine room that's going to be what is responsible for exerting your forces on things. And we know that the muscle is incredibly prone to changes in, in the rhythm of things. So in terms of whether we're talking about carbohydrate metabolism, lipid metabolism, or indeed protein metabolism, we find clear day-night rhythms in these things. And in our symposium review, we kind of listed through the the individual nutrients that if, if anyone's interested in the specific responses, But as I mentioned, the exposure of that peripheral tissue then, generally seeing more glucose in the morning and more lipid later in the day, is consistent with how oxidation is going to change over the day. And then the other important tissues, the liver, probably would be the the second I would mention. We know how critically important that is for homeostasis generally, but particularly when we're thinking about athletes and exercise, it shows such a clear rhythm in being a carbohydrate reserve for exercise um i don't think gets as much attention as it should i think many people read about exercise science and will be forgiven for thinking that muscle glycogen is desperately important which it is but i think many people in this field certainly when you're new to the field i did as an undergraduate i thought muscle glycogen was so important because everybody's measuring it But the reason we're all measuring it is because it's so safe and easy to take muscle biopsies. The fact that so few studies have really looked at liver metabolism, uh, certainly not using muscle biopsies, isn't telling us that it's not important. It's just that it's really difficult to do. So they're really valuable the studies that we have that have done that. But just the same as with muscle. In our review, we broke it down for muscle, liver, and I think adipose tissue and showed that carbohydrate and fat and protein metabolism all show clear rhythms which can be affected by both nutrition and or exercise. Generally, as I say, we're thinking about higher glucose levels in the morning and higher lipid levels in the in the afternoon. One study, I think I may have talked about this on a previous podcast, but I can't remember, one study we did do where we took muscle biopsies around the clock. No exercise in that study, I should add, but We had people staying in our laboratory for 36 hours consecutively and took a muscle biopsy every four hours. So I was incredibly grateful to our participants over that time. But that gave us one of these early looks at we applied lipidomics, which really means we were measuring the levels of various lipid metabolites over the period. And you see this really clear rhythm where, despite the fact our participants didn't get meals, it was just constant feeding you find that the levels of gene transcript, so the gene expression, and also the levels of these actual lipid metabolites in the muscle show a clear what I call tick-tock. Interestingly, a lot of these things, four o'clock is the magic time. So you tend to have your lowest levels of the lipid metabolites at four o'clock in the morning and highest at four o'clock in the afternoon, consistent with when your blood fats are highest.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating in its own right and potentially from a different conversation about issues with sleep and various other things maybe, which I've got Neil Walsh coming on in not-too-distant future, uh, not to talk about immune health uh, as we have in the past, but uh, also about sleep and uh, how that impacts health and various other things. So I'm going to ask him about that and we'll see what he thinks. I guess when we're talking about nutrition, metabolism, body composition, why we should bother altering our diet, our lifestyle and and so on, that inevitably comes to the topic of well how's that going to affect my my weight, you know, who cares about health? Let's talk about weight. Obviously they're related, one way or the other, and there are two topics that one tends to to look at. And one of course is energy expenditure and the other one is from the other perspective is the factors that influence why you feed yourself as much as you might feed. And I guess, you know, we'll tackle this next phase of this conversation in the same way where what I'm interested in is what are the relevance of these rhythms to energy expenditure to proceed the conversation about appetite regulation, of course.
1: Yeah. So when we're thinking about energy expenditure broadly, we just have to remember that we're talking about three components. Resting metabolic rate, which is just your ongoing energy requirements. Diet-induced thermogenesis, which is how much your metabolism increases in response to a meal. There's varied evidence for a circadian rhythm for some of those aspects, but the physical activity energy expenditure is the one where it certainly has the most capacity to respond to your feeding state, your sleep, and all the other kind of time givers we might have but there's very poor evidence for a clear rhythm in that other than just the natural it's going to be higher when you're up and at work and your body temperature's higher your heart rate's higher but that's always interested me whether eating at certain times can adjust that and so we as i as i talked about on i think the first podcast i did with you our breakfast study has shown that in lean and obese people, that if you skip breakfast, you will spontaneously cut down your physical activity levels. I'm really pleased that since that, I mean, the finding was really clear, actually. It was a big difference in energy expenditure. But nonetheless, I'm really pleased that since then, several other laboratories have independently verified that. Cross-sectional research seems to show that too. We've done some other studies that have shown it. And then our most recent study we had, this was the the lead author was Ian Templeman, we published this in Science Translational Medicine just last year, was doing alternate day fasting, where we had people either eat for 24 hours or fast for 24 hours at a time. So while a lot of people talk about alternate day fasting, and there's many studies looking at that, the fasting days often didn't necessarily involve fasting, they were just low energy intake. But if you just have a few hundred calories every now and then, you might actually still not be in a fasted state. So we were kind of going for proof of principle here to really see if there is any effect of fasting, no one's going to be able to accuse us that this was not fasting. We had people doing, they were going 24 hours without food at a time. I have then had a lot of people accuse us afterwards and say, well, this is useless. Who's going to do that in the real world? So I hasten to add We're not trying to sell diet books here. I'm not recommending that anybody does what we did. But it was looking at the physiological mechanism. And we did find again, as we've seen in our previous studies then, that the participants who were trying to lose weight by fasting every other day, they did cut down their physical activity levels. So these the kind of just like with our breakfast research. I don't believe it's that if you have breakfast, you suddenly join a gym and go and run for two hours but it's the spontaneous low to moderate level activity that you almost don't notice you're doing and we were able to measure that that is what's lower if you miss breakfast or if you fast for a whole day you cut back on your energy expenditure a little
0: yeah no that's great and that really helps a lot i think you know in sports science sports nutrition and so on whatever textbook you pick up or Again, I've done podcasts about this. There's a lot of information and there's a lot of confidence in what we know about measuring things like energy expenditure and what's involved in expending energy. And we can plan our workouts with some degree of accuracy of, oh, I'm going to do a 500-calorie workout. It'll be fairly close. And indeed, we can sit there and go, oh, all I've got to do is introduce a slight energy deficit and so on and so forth. But of course, what it doesn't really take into account is is not not so much the knowing or thinking you know what you should eat in terms of calories or whatever, if you've managed to pen that onto paper or use your energy calculators and so on. It is that sheer human thing of a desire to actually eat. One's appetite is a powerful thing. And for many people, that is such a powerful thing that it is the master and not the slave that brings about many of the problems that they have with obesity potentially or weight problems or whatever or at least that's a a perception that's an angle or a concern and there are various people have, have written works i'm thinking hungry brain for example is an interesting book on this sort of topic there are various other people that will suggest that there are various reasons why our appetite can be influenced by even something as simple as having a good day or a bad day the emotional links that go there but, of course, there is also a link with the circadian rhythms, isn't there? What is that link and why is that potentially important?
1: Yeah, I think that human element is so important because, as you say, people people have a drive to eat per se, but at the same time, I I feel that a simple public health message that's easy to understand, there's no need to calorie count, whether we're talking about intermittent fasting, however you define that, or time-restricted eating is the other one, which is kind of, depending on how you define it, is is a type of intermittent fasting. But the key thing that I take away from it, having seen lots of our participants go through these, is one thing you can't deny is that it's, it's easy to understand what you're doing. You don't need to count calories. You don't need to know whether this food is healthy or high in fat, so you don't need a degree in nutrition. You need to be able to read your watch. So as long as you know, I don't get to eat till three o'clock today or I don't get to eat after three o'clock today, people can do that. And I, the impression I get anyway is that psychologically that binary on off decision of I don't get to eat. If a friend offers me a biscuit, I say no because I don't get to eat till three. I think people strangely find that more acceptable to adopt and adhere to then they would saying, right, well, if I've had a biscuit now, that's this many points or calories, and now I can't have another one later. It's like once you've opened the floodgates, you can't close them again. So I certainly think that in the human element, there's a side where time-restricted eating is good. And then when we link that back, as per your question, to the rhythms, the question is, where should that window be? Arguably, I'm not such a fan of these kind of chronotype ideas where we – again, just dichotomize people into being morning larks or night owls. I'm not sure there's two types of people in the world and two only, but certainly there are people who fall into one group or the other and say, oh, I couldn't live without breakfast. I'd rather miss dinner, and some people the other way. And One of the other studies we mentioned in in this review we just wrote, Harry Smith did a paper on sleep fragmentation and caffeine where at the end, because the coffee before breakfast really seemed to have a negative effect on insulin sensitivity, I tried to apply a more pragmatic conclusion, because I figured if we go ahead and say, don't drink coffee, people don't want to hear that. But if we have the pragmatic conclusion that maybe just have your coffee after breakfast, then it can't interfere with your postprandial response. It was really quite strange, because for every person who was just saying, that's crazy, who who would drink coffee after breakfast? There was another saying, well, you're crazy. Doesn't everybody drink their coffee after breakfast? So I definitely think that there's people who naturally have very polar approaches to, to their nutrition in terms of time of day anyway.
0: Well, you raise an interesting point, which actually links to me personally, for example, where I love coffee. In fact, I'm more interested in my coffee than I am in my breakfast it's partly a cultural thing i was raised in a french house you know having coffee is important it's also an opportunity to have a conversation and you know in my i bring it as my mother and i used to have chats over a coffee you know before school or whatever and it was really look uh, i wasn't drinking coffee as a six-year-old by the way or an eight-year-old but the you know there is that we talked about the human element There are, of course, components here that relate to what people like and don't like and the practicality of it. And of course, we also need to bear in mind, you know, you and I both parents, James, there are certain things that, you know, also need to fit with what works for everyone else. And I think I'm with you. I don't think we can just put everyone into a black and white, you're you're a this, you're an A, you're a B because life isn't that simple, but also there is potentially the fact that you may not have have adapted to or found your appropriate type for whatever reason but however which way we look at it provides us with opportunities and so it goes from reading your paper I I hadn't known too much about these environmental cues time cues these zeitgebers for example so it's not just a question of what happens to be practical because that will be an overriding factor for most people I would imagine but if they're going to take what the science tells us into account, or what you've learned into account, I think these cues, these time cues are, are useful strategies to to help tweak our existing lifestyles. What are those cues, those time cues, those physiological opportunities, James? And are they relevant? Are they useful as a strategy? What are your thoughts? Yeah.
1: So there's all sorts of those cues, but when I have to come up if if I have to come up with a kind of league table, then top of the list is is light exposure so if people are just thinking of a checklist of which things need to align and which things could they use to help adjust their daily pattern or their daily rhythm then your light dark cycle is important so trying to get light exposure at the right time as in daytime when you're awake and you know many technologies help us with that now a lot of our phones and so on try and protect us from bright that blue light that Is going to wake us up at the wrong times. After light and being awake, I think nutrition comes in second. So making sure that during your awake phase in the light is when you eat and not eating at night. But I'll come back to that in a moment. And then again, linked to that, the next one would be our restfulness and active cycles. So generally, for most people, when it's dark, so when we're on the side of the planet not facing the sun, you don't want other artificial light shining your way. You want to be asleep. You want to be not eating. And that's when you have your rest. And then when you're in the sunshine, you're awake, eating and active. So that's the very simplistic way to look at those main time givers. But I think going back to that, I think I do still wonder whether you mentioned opportunities. And while there's a real focus, and I'm sure Neil Welsh will talk about this then, about how the importance of sleep, and of course, we don't want to We don't want to interrupt sleep unnecessarily. I do sometimes think of athletes who are, by definition, some of the most motivated and dedicated people we find. That if you tell them, go for a two-hour run every day, go and sit in an ice bath, think of all the things that athletes do which are really very uncomfortable, but they do them because of their drive to compete. We're often dealing with someone who... Telling them, don't eat this food, do eat this food, that's the easy job for them. They're going to do the the exercise and the ice baths and everything. So having a nutritionist tell them, right, you're not having carbohydrate today, or you have to ingest this supplement which tastes awful but will improve performance. I think in many ways you could take an athlete as this is someone not just trying to have a healthy diet. They want an optimal diet. And that word optimal is always dangerous because it means can't do any better. So if this person is following all the advice, they're doing what you're telling them, which isn't what you get normally if you're giving nutritional counselling to a general member of the public, the athlete will often do what they're asked. So let's say they're following, they're eating the right amounts of food, they're eating the right types of food, they're spreading their protein across the day, they're they're doing everything as they should be during the day, and you're thinking, well, where is our further opportunity for marginal gain? And that is the only reason I'm saying, hmm, well, if they're probably following the advice for a good night's sleep too, which we know is important for all sorts of things, does that also give us one more opportunity to intervene? The only period of a day when an athlete is catabolic, post-absorptive is while they're asleep. Now, I'm not saying it is possible, but it's a possible opportunity. It could be that waking them up is just so harmful that, actually we don't want to do that anyway but there's a lot of people who wake up in the nighttime anyway so maybe there is a way to say just you know waking up and having a quick shot of a room temperature supplement could be an opportunity so could do more harm than good but that remains to be seen so i do think it would be interesting to see some more studies on nocturnal metabolism in athletes either ingesting something Maybe something with a slower response before bed, like casein or something, or having people wake up at the middle of the night and having a quick shot and going back to sleep. Might even improve sleep, by the way. There's a few supplements where their sole purpose might be to help you sleep better.
0: That brings me back to something I I like to talk about a lot, where things like the knowledge that we have on these things, the strategies that then become available, the having understanding the the strengths and limits of those strategies the tools in the toolbox is really what I refer to you know whether it's a supplement or or a strategy is why it's important to understand this stuff but also to understand the significance of it so that you can sit there and go I can do said strategy but do I do I really think this is a good idea and that's what you have to weigh up isn't it in that in that thought process so in that mind you know in that mindset of importance you know we've talked about body composition we've talked about nutrient timing and metabolic regulation a fair bit but from an impact on health specifically obviously a human being living in this world i mean it's pretty dangerous particularly the time we're recording this it's ever more dangerous whether it's viruses or people trying to take over countries or whatever but within the realms of of nutrient timing and the impact that that realistically can have on your health where where you're not losing sleep worrying about this sort of thing i guess in summary what are your sort of concluding thoughts on this topic and particularly as it relates to health which is the more important focus i guess on this stuff
1: okay i would say i'm comfortable saying that timing and the when we eat has been less researched than the amount we eat and what type of food we eat and i'm comfortable saying that it's really important I think it might not be as important as those other things, but it certainly has the potential to affect our bodies and is one of the tools in our toolbox. So maybe that analogy is the way to go. It might not be your most important tool. might be that your general lifestyle of when things happen means that that isn't practical, that you can't say I'm going to eat the same time every day because not everything else in your life happens at those times every day. But it's certainly important enough to understand it better and know how to not get it wrong whether that's for health or performance means so I think we just for a proper understanding of nutrition those are your three considerations for me everything in nutrition comes under those headings what you eat how much and when you eat it there's no consideration outside of that so yeah I think there's still a lot more to learn And if I was kind of saying, what are the things I think are the potential growth areas, just as I was maybe more pessimistic earlier about how soon we're going to get anything more on personalized nutrition, especially in relation to meal timing, the things where I think we're going to see more data. And if people are getting into research, it would be great to jump on the novelty. would be looking at sequential meals. So understanding the effect of feeding when you've already had a priming meal earlier on. And looking at the nighttime opportunity to eat or not to eat, it could be an opportunity for either.
0: Yeah. For me on the personalized nutrition thing, I know we've done, we had a good podcast all about that and for people should listen to that. I think it's still every bit as relevant as it is today. And I'll link to all of those podcasts that we've done and other relevant bits and all the papers and stuff we've discussed, but nonetheless, People are going, oh, you know, that's all very well. But what about me? Me, 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 you know, my situation or my client's situation as a nutritionist, somebody's paying me to provide them with individualized advice. And for me, personalization is where I've got all these different things I could do there's too many things I could do with my client my athlete so for me personalization is simply a question of I'm just prioritizing the various things that we could do into like you say a league table of of priorities which I feel are going to have the most significant impact that are healthy are relevant etc in the time that's available and there may be testing involved but that might be something like I'm assessing someone's body composition just to understand. Where they're at with their body composition, as opposed to maybe some of these these novel tests that appear to be very scientific, et cetera, whether it's genetic testing or food intolerance testing or whatever. but the reality is is that the science may not what well, is not there really in my opinion, though most of the people I've spoken to, but nonetheless, personalized nutrition is something you've mentioned I've mentioned is of great interest to people and this of course is an area that i guess it's the other version of that word personalized it's very personal to impact one's daily habits and lifestyle isn't it and however which way you look at it having a greater understanding on this topic allows you to personalize your your approach to nutrition or your your prioritizing the importance of getting your lifestyle sorted right i mean fundamentally from your perspective james that is clearly something that is important for human health isn't it
1: yeah and i think this comes down to the semantics of personalization you can take an individual in as a client their program is not going to be the same as everybody else's so it's individualized but often when people use the term personalized they mean some stable personal characteristic like well tell me my blood type and that means i should eat more chips or something or can we look at my genetics if we look at my genome or my microbiome or you know i'm going to give you all my vital statistics and you tell me what to eat for the rest of my life and that's not what i think is possible or will ever be possible it's the the phrase that we used in our in our review was that it's it's not about who you are it's about what you do so yes you can personalize a program but it's not on their stable personal characteristics you would want to be measuring and monitoring constantly their personal lifestyle. What do you do? When do you do it? What are you trying to achieve? How did you respond to that at this time of day? And so the kind of measurements you want are not a snapshot of who they are that can be applied forevermore. It's about monitoring to see, well, okay, so you seem to get up at this time and you're out in the light at this time. And then we're measuring your physical activity and this happens and you seem to have a few spikes in glucose at that time. And again, I think that's a good news story, not just because it feels good to say that we're all more the same than we are different, which especially at the moment is a message the world needs to hear. But it's also good because if we had made that statement, you know, if if the genome had been sequenced earlier and we'd realized how futile some of these diets based on genetics were 30 years ago we wouldn't be able to give an alternative to those but realizing now that we're not going to be able to predict diets just based on genetic information or something actually falls at a point in history where everybody is walking around being monitored the whole time you know people are wearing i see people wearing glucose monitors all the time physical activity monitors your phone light exposure so it's at a time when our free living Lifestyle environmental influences can be monitored, and so I think there's a lot of potential in that trying to integrate that into say, not just oh, when you said you had carbohydrates at breakfast, your blood sugars did this, is being able to match that up with oh, hang on, those were on the days you worked out or when you did these exercises. So, so yeah, I'm not totally canning personalization unless it's someone using that term to mean stable characteristics i think we just need to model on other factors
0: absolutely james and you and i are on the same page on a lot of these things which is why right at the beginning we both feel it's important to define what we mean by certain terms and so on and of course that is just an example it gets lost in translation and of course for those that don't have your background in particular in science and and research a lot of this stuff's very convincingly precise and accurate whereas the reality is you know it might have print out you know you get a blood and or a buckle swab sample or whatever and it, you know you get a nice fancy looking report from a lab and it's extremely convincing but the reality is hmm. hence knowing the strengths and limitations of this stuff i have a running theme where i i talk about yes we we use phrases like evidence-based all the time but as a practitioner i prefer the term evidence-informed practice because i still need to be in there critically thinking about this stuff and deciding on the context. Is it actually relevant in this particular situation? That study was done on basketball players, yes, but that was college basketball players, and I might be trying to apply this to the world's greatest elite basketball player on the planet, and he is absolutely an outlier as it relates to those college baseball players. So one is apples and the other one's oranges sort of conversation. So we could go on for hours and hours and hours. I know we could. You're a busy man, so I, I want you to let you go and, and get back in the lab, basically, and help us learn more. But I'm going to, as I said, link into the show notes, papers and podcasts and so on. But if people want to follow what you and your team are up to, is there a lab website, et cetera, nowadays? How do we follow you guys?
1: So if you go to the Bath pages, then on the university website, we have our, our Center for Nutrition, Exercise and Metabolism, C-N-E-M, or my Twitter handle, which I expect they'll find through yours since we were chatting earlier, but that's uh, Dr. B Steam Jets. Yeah, and otherwise, we'll just, I make sure I make as much noise as possible about the papers as they come out to try and make sure they achieve impact.
0: Well, great. Well, look, you've had plenty of impact over the years, and hopefully today the listeners have been impacted by what we've talked about and the knowledge and perspectives you've brought to it so I'd, on behalf of myself and the listeners i'd like to thank you very much for your time today james i look forward to talking to you again in the very near future
1: yeah you're very welcome and let's see if any of your listeners can come up with the clock with the fewest number of moving parts
0: there you go there's a challenge for the listeners find us on twitter and let's go for it <laughs> okay thank you james
1: thanks very much Bye bye